0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Software Talk. Today, we're going to be talking about um, modernization to a um, up and coming, very popular um, new architecture uh, called microservices. Um, So for those of you that are unfamiliar with what microservices are, it's a new architecture that is designed to break a whole bunch of functionality into individual domain-specific services that are as small as possible and tied to a single domain. Um, This is becoming very popular in a cloud type infrastructure where you essentially want to have elastically growing functionality um, across many different teams as well as many different um, pieces that come together to make a coherent system. Now, this new architecture is often treated as what I describe as a silver bullet. What I mean by that is, you know, it's going to fix all of your development problems to um, switch to this new architecture. And as you might expect, this just doesn't end up being the case most times. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about what are some of the pitfalls, misunderstandings about microservices, how can you actually adapt it to work for your individual team as well as what are some growth potentials um, and things to consider as you move forward into considering a more modern architecture for your system so first of all let's start talking about what actually microservices are so again as i said before it's really just thinking of your system as a whole bunch of very small independent domains That you string together to make um, kind of composite uh, services into providing large functionality for a system. Now domain driven design is not something that's unique to microservices it's it's been around for a while. It's just very important uh, when you consider microservices to be domain focused. Uh, If you don't end up being domain focused when you're building your microservices you'll find that you struggle in determining where to draw the borders between your microservices. Uh, So what are these misconceptions that happen to be for microservices? So really for microservices, there tends to be this thought that they have to be web enabled. I mean, a lot of the literature that you see talks about, oh, you want them to be web services so that they can talk to each other through that kind of an interface. Um, So that you can be language agnostic. And what you find in practical situations is language agnostic um, doesn't really buy you that much in most situations. And it's actually a really expensive thing to have um, for a team that shares code. Now, Again, microservices were originally built for teams to not share code and be individual contributors to a larger system that gets put together. But again, you're kind of reinventing a lot of the wheel, and it puts a lot of onus on each individual team in order to provide um, those feature sets. So in most systems that are actually becoming microsystems, you actually have more um, collaboration between the teams and some common code that can be reused so that each team doesn't have to go reinventing the wheel each time as they're doing their microservices. But anytime you have common code, you really only have the common code for a small set of languages. You can't have universal common code across any different languages. And so a lot of times you tend to, even though you want the power of language agnosticness you don't often really want it from that perspective on code reuse. So what a lot of teams end up doing is they actually make it a web service so that they get that power, but then force you to use one of two languages. Um, Usually it's Java or C-sharp. Sometimes they'll, you know, throw in, some other back end languages, and I mean for the front end, you know, you have Node and Type, and that that seems to be more flexible. But I'm more focusing on the back end services uh, when I'm talking about the common code. The other problem with making the assumption that every single microservice architecture implementation has to be web is there's performance concerns when it comes to making all of your atomic services web enabled um when you break things down into a very very small level and everything has to go through an http call you have two problems that arise um, related to performance the first just has to do with the nature of you're doing web calls Um, it's actually really more expensive to do a web call than i think a lot of people realize, I mean, you have to typically do a domain object conversion into some kind of a either JSON or XML or Google Protocol buffers or whatever your transfer mechanism is that you're sending the data across, then there's a process of serialization and deserialization. And especially if that exchange has to be encrypted in a new way, that's a very expensive operation, where You know, if you just did the same exact architecture as if you had it be web-enabled, but you did dependency injection because you've decided to have your microservices tied to a specific language, then you cut out all of that different overhead related to the actual transaction itself. The other performance concern that's in the literature about microservices is if you have, coupled transactions, meaning that you want to ensure that a transaction happens across multiple different domains. And what happens for microservices is in order to accomplish this, what has to happen is someone is paying attention to each of the different microservices and listening for it to respond. And if anywhere along the chain, there's a failure, what then the system has to do is actually go back and roll back each of the successful microservices back to the original state in order to ensure the transaction integrity. And that's what I mean by it being expensive to do when you have a microservice architecture just in general, but that's, again, especially troublesome when you do a web-enabled one because you're having to do all of those different rollback exchanges with the price tag of the web exchange. And again, really all you're gaining by having every single service be web enabled in this type of an architecture is the language agnosticness. If you made the small change of saying, well, you still want everything outside of your composite service to be web enabled, but all of your atomic services that make up the composite service those have to be, you know, the same language and they're injected dependency. It still has the same intent of microservices, which is to create small domain-driven services, but it saves you a lot of transaction pieces. And each of these kind of customizations really depends on what your individual domain looks like, how easy it is to build these kind of composite service clusters, and whether or not you need to share the data from each of the atomic services across multiple different um, composite services. All of these are factors to consider when you are deciding how to build your microservices. But a lot of times there's this mentality, again, I mentioned the the silver bulletness that microservices is going to prevent you from having to actually do engineering and analysis of what makes up the services. And that's just never the case. You know, you run into these performance problems, you can run into deployment concerns. Um, if you're not deploying this application to a cloud infrastructure that has elasticity, you know you're putting in a lot of overhead and probably not gaining what you think you're going to gain just because of that deployment because microservices wasn't the right architecture for you to upgrade so looking at what your system actually does how tightly coupled your domain is and whether or not those domain items cross multiple services is kind of pivotal to appreciating if microservices is going to be the right modern architecture for you there are other ones out there that can do just as good of a job but have their own drawbacks and so really as um oh it's an architecture book um i want to say it's the it's clean architecture is the one um It's a great book out there if you want to learn more about system architecture. But one of the things that it preaches that I wholeheartedly agree with is waiting till the last possible minute to decide on what your architecture is going to be. And by doing that, it allows you to let the domain and let your application actually drive the architecture in order to be able to facilitate the best choice versus pigeonholing yourself into this microservice architecture ahead of time and limiting yourself where you really don't want that kind of an architecture down the end and then you're trying to make all of these um, special customizations in order to adapt for it for example one of the projects i worked on they made it a requirement that service to service communication actually doesn't go through web services it goes through um, a queue broker. And the reason they do that is because the queue broker actually has better performance than the web service does. But it means that every single one of your atomic services not only has to build a web wrapper, but it also has to build a um, event broker wrapper as well. So you're really increasing the workload on your dev teams in order to facilitate both of those When in actuality, what they really wanted is they wanted to be able to break the microservices into atomic services that they could inject into multiple places, but they had this very narrow view of what a microservice architecture is such that they pigeonholed themselves into making some poor, poor design decisions. That's definitely something that you want to avoid when you're upgrading your architectures. Another very common problem I see when teams try to upgrade to a microservice architecture is this idea that just because you have a collection of microservices, it means that you're going to be able to easily consolidate them together into a functional system. And what happens in reality is a lot of these microservices have fundamental differences that make it really, really hard to actually stitch them together. And you find that a lot of the microservice providers, what they actually end up doing is they set out a very small set of governance rules in order to facilitate easier integration of the microservices. So for example, um, I think I talked about it in the last episode about requiring domain objects to have IDs. Now, this is a governance rule that I've seen in a lot of different microservice providers saying, hey, if you're providing a microservice that represents a domain model that you're sharing, it has to be um, uniquely identifiable across the system so that anybody can request it by that ID And what this allows is this allows for referencing of those domain objects to make more composite domain objects um, in the system, as well as provide um, cross cutting capabilities that can be leveraged across many different microservices. So these cross cutting, cross cutting capabilities can be things like you know, logging, where you need to be able to log the domain object, but you need to be able to find it. So a common way of saying, hey, if it's an ID item, it's a domain object. Great, we we can look that up and we know how to print the ID of all the objects that we're logging. Another cross-cutting capability might be tagging. So you might want to support in your system the ability to add a tag to any domain model. That itself is a microservice because the domain is domain model object tagging, but it crosses into every single domain object that you have in your system. And so having that uniquely ID domain model allows you to provide that kind of a capability for anybody that wants tagging without having to change the code of any of your other services by just ensuring that you have that one rule. So that's what I mean by having these high level governance across all the microservices that enable these more integratable points across all the different services. Now, when I say high level governance, the uh, one of the other pitfalls I've seen in microservices is they really want the governance to go too low level and take it to the other extreme. I've been on a project where they actually dictated down to all the different microservices teams the names of the packages that we had to be in. They dictated to us the explicit check style format that we had to have to style our code. Um, they dictated to us, you know, all of our services had to have, you know, puts and and um, that they supported versions and all of these different requirements, some of which I do agree with and is in the realm of trying to make a consolidated system. But a lot of them, what their real intention was is, well, you have these bunch of microservices across a bunch of different teams. We wanna be able to switch out which team does what and fully utilize our teams that way. Um, I don't know if this is a popular trend in microservices, but I've, I've seen it across a lot of different teams versus what the literature more talks about is you really actually want the team to own that microservice. And if another team comes along and builds a similar capability, you want them to fully replace the microservice versus kind of take over or augment an existing team's microservice. And the reason for that is it's hard to actually look at other teams' code everybody has their own desires, everybody has their own way of looking at things, everybody has their own set of rules, and they do that for a very good reason. So this idea that because you have microservices now, that it's easy to hand off those services to another team and all the developers are interchangeable is just ridiculous. But it seems to be this desire, you know, for a long time for management to be able to do that and it'd be great if it's possible, but it never tends to be the case. Because there's just too much difference between the teams and really what you want to facilitate is teams owning their individual microservices. You can set standard rules, but rather than setting standard rules of saying that should have this exact style the better way of doing it is saying thou shall have a style rule set and you have to enforce that you follow it so that your team as a whole is being more productive and that you're adhering to these higher level coding standards for your services another common problem in the migration to microservices has to do with some of the demands of microservices themselves so the concept of a CI/CD pipeline is also not new. Yes, CI/CD pipeline is continuous integration, continuous deployment and it's a modern practice where you have this build pipeline that's constantly building all of the changes, pushing those changes out and then if they pass a bunch of quality gates, then it will actually deploy those changes to the live system. If they fail the quality gates, then they get rejected and the developers have to look at it and et cetera, et cetera. But well, this is a very, you know, common practice into that, and it's really essential in order for microservices to succeed, because there's just too much going on. There's too many independent pieces for each of the services, and really nobody actually has a good idea of how the system behaves at a whole. So having those quality gates, having that CICD pipeline perform more integration level tests in order to ensure that the deployment is essential for doing microservice development. Yet I haven't seen a team yet that spends the upfront time that fully dedicates to setting up that pipeline, as well as some of the other practices that go along with microservices. So if your team is looking to change to a microservice architecture, my recommendation is, you know, have all of your dev teams be dedicated towards more of these infrastructure and discovery tasks. And until the infrastructure tasks are complete at a minimum, the discovery tasks um, can be partially complete, but definitely the infrastructure tasks have to be complete before you can actually start developing any of your system if you start before then then you're not doing yourselves any favor you're going to be building up tons and tons of technical debt and teams aren't going to want to fix that you're going to spend years and years kind of trying to get that working getting it back into the flow getting those standards retrofitted into some of the older services they're not going to perform as well and you're just going to have problems on problems so, what do you actually need from an infrastructure perspective? So, I, I did mention, you know, the CI/CD pipeline have to have that. Um, you also have to have a common, um, you know, code repository in order to feed into that um, CI/CD pipeline, or at least, you know, a set of repositories that the CI/CD pipeline has access to. Another important piece that you need to build is some infrastructure around managing all of those different repositories. So it's a common practice to have a Git or whatever your um, source control tool is having one-to-one mapping of that and a microservice. And each of those should be versioned in order to facilitate Uh, change over time, because not everybody's going to be upgrading to your latest version all the time. However, what starts to happen is, well, you may not want to upgrade to a new version of that, but one of your other dependencies did upgrade to that version. So in order to be able to upgrade to them and not have two different versions of the same software running in your microservice, you kind of have to propagate those changes and know what all of those changes are and it starts to become a versioning nightmare. So spending some time on some infrastructure related pieces of identifying, hey, what are those versions? What are the different ties? What's the most latest version? You know, and that piece is really essential to saving yourself time in the long run, but it's often not focused on at the beginning Because it's not a problem at the beginning, it gets to be a problem, you know, a year or two down the road, when you have all these microservices built, and you're trying to balance all of these different domain dependencies across all the different services. Another important infrastructure task is setting up some kind of a common uh, communication tool so that anybody that's contributing microservices can ask a question to any of the different teams, and they have different representatives to answer those questions. Now, there's a lot of purists out there, again, that say, oh, well, the code should be self-documenting. You should be able to look at the Swagger pages and be able to determine all the ins and outs of the service that's being provided. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a service where the Swagger documentation or any of the API documentation is 100% solid, that I didn't have a desire or a want to ask a developer a question. Probably some of the best are some of the common libraries, like maybe the Apache Commons Library or those. But they spend gobs and gobs of time generating that documentation that takes them so much effort that really you don't want to levy on all of your different microservice teams unless you don't have a means of facilitating communication between the different teams. Again, it's it's analyzing your dev situation and taking advantage where you can of things that make sense. If you can talk to another developer, then you should talk to another developer. Now, obviously you don't wanna be asking them tons of questions and have no documentation in your code because then you're spending all that developer's time answering the other team's questions. So there's there's a balance there that you have to achieve. But if you have that infrastructure in place and you have those representatives in place, then it facilitates faster and better development. Now, I also mentioned at the same time, teams should be working on pathfinding, or I I don't remember what I called them, but we'll just say they're, we'll call them pathfinding for now, tasks. What I mean by these pathfinder tasks is you should be figuring out how to do things. So an important concept in microservices, for example, is you sh- service should support multiple different versions. And you should set you know, a timeframe in which versions are gonna be supported till you'll have a cutoff date and then those older versions will fall off. But to have an expectation that every single team is going to upgrade to the latest version whenever you release it is not realistic. And sometimes you have breaking changes. But a lot of teams aren't used to managing multiple different versions and what that entails. Um, an example that I've run into even you know, just the other day was a team thought that they were providing different versions. And so what I asked them is, OK, so if I make a call to the version 1 because they're moving on to version 5. Will I be able to get data that was populated from the version 5 call? And they said no, because they built different databases for each of them. So the version 1 has an entirely separate database from the version 5, and there's no cross calls between the two of them. So essentially, their versioning is useless, because the whole point is that I could continue to run on version 1 until it's obfuscated, and people can use the version five, but we are looking at the same data as if we were using the same interface minus you know, whatever breaking change happened in version five. Like, and if you are calling version one, you may have to default certain required values on version five in order for that data to make sense but learning how to do that for teams is essential if you don't have that experience and so that's where you need to find these kind of more foundational tasks for the team to discover how to actually write microservices this is so forgotten a lot of the times it's just assumed oh well I might read an article about how to write a microservice and how to write a web service, but I've never done it before. But these articles are going to you know, tell me everything that I need to know and solve all of my problems. And I'm sure we all know in reality, that is not the case. And that just doesn't lead to practical development. We talked a little bit about quality gates. Another important foundational task that needs to be completed is unit testing. And I've been on so many teams that just have never really unit tested, or if they have unit tested, they really haven't built effective unit tests to validate their component. And when you're relying on the components to be very well hardened, like in a microservice type style, where each component's hardened ability makes you able to use it as a composite service without having to do high level integration testing, you really need to ensure that your unit tests are very, very well done. And this is something that I actually fault a lot of universities in not teaching effective unit testing. I mean, I had a test class in college And yeah, I learned the foundations of ooh, here's white box testing and here's black box testing. And here's these high level kind of foundational concepts. But I can't tell you how many homework assignments I had that actually required me to write unit tests that actually required that as a passing grade versus when you get into production systems, you know, you almost write more unit tests than you do code in an effective microservice system. And this is a huge gap in what they teach because, again, they're more caring about, oh, what's your code output versus are you actually ensuring that that code is correct through effective testing. So a lot of teams have to be trained and have to practice and need example sets in how to write good unit tests. And I do struggle too with microservices when it comes to unit tests, because when we talk quality gates, what usually gets thrown out there is some magic number. Um, 80% is a very popular one to say, hey, if you have 80% line and branch coverage, um, you're good. Another one that I've seen thrown out there is 100%. And I am not in any way, shape or form advocating for 100% because, what you find in most cases is getting from like 95% to 100 the level of effort involved is astronomical and you're really not getting much gain out of it so 80% is a good goal it also depends on the code i dislike the concept of setting a quality gate that is universal across the system for a standard versus having it be more adaptive if you're doing domain models and most of your code is database related, you have you know, getters and setters and maybe some validation logic on the domain, then 80% is a fine number. Um, I've seen a lot of teams you know, have to generate all kinds of getters and setter tests in order to facilitate their coverage number where they're really not adding any value to the system um, just to meet you know, their higher requirements on it versus if you're doing a complex calculation algorithm, you may want close to 100% coverage due to the complexity of what you're doing in that algorithm. So it really should be focused on what is the actual requirement of the code? Because at the end of the day, you're not trying to make this arbitrary number percentage of coverage. What you're trying to say through your unit tests is, I the engineer certify that the testing that I have done on this class gives me faith that it's going to hold up. Now, obviously you've been taught in school that you can never ensure that any code is bug free and that's a hundred percent true, but you should feel confident that the product through your tests has been tested well enough that the likelihood of error is incredibly low. And another practice that I've adopted that is really helpful when it comes to unit tests is after you release a product that you have that base level of coverage, once that gets out to users and you start seeing bug reports come back in, always add a unit test for that bug. And this kind of gets into some of the, you know, test driven development type mentalities. But what I do is I actually write the unit test to verify the bug and have it fail. And I start with that failing unit test. And then when I apply the fix, my goal at the end of the day is to make that unit test pass. And then I keep that unit test as part of the test suite because clearly this was an area that I didn't think I needed to have coverage, but is more complicated in the system than I originally thought. So keeping it in your test suite actually prevents you from having some of these cyclical errors where one fix continues to break the thing that you thought was fixed, and that repeat in a a, a cycle over time that I've seen on a couple of different projects that actually led to me adopting that strategy. What else for effective unit tests? So another problem that I see a lot of times is, again, when you're being driven by coverage, I've seen a lot of tests not actually test anything. They get the coverage, sure, and ooh, I've covered that branch, but the developers aren't actually sitting there and thinking, what is this test actually showing? What is it proving in the system that I care about. And so building those tests, building those habits, and giving good examples to the team is a very important foundational piece when you're starting to switch to these modern architectures that rely on these kind of quality metrics to function. Another common problem when it comes to upgrading to a microservice architecture is a lot of these modern architectures, especially if you're combining it with some of the agile style methodologies, is you really have to practice the evolving design concepts for your architecture. Having all these different domains and kind of figuring out how to couple them into larger services is very fluid and you're not going to be able to get it right as an architect right off the bat i mean it's just too complicated you haven't done some of the waterfall style methodologies in order to facilitate all of that ahead of time so you're really being adaptive along the way and this is a problem for a lot of software architects because software architecture tends to be assigned to people more in the system engineering domain. And don't get me wrong, I have nothing against system engineers. They fulfill a important role that I myself can't do. But my problem with software architects being system engineers is in order to effectively perform a evolutionary design, you need to be looking at the code you need to be in there talking with the dev teams or talking with dev team reps depending on how many teams you have but you should be in the code and able to figure out what is going wrong what does not conform what is not aligning to your architecture vision and what is causing pinch points across the architecture that need your attention if you've never looked at code in your entire career and you're serving a role as a software architect, it's like an actual architect of a skyscraper never actually going to the site and making on-site adjustments. Like that's an unheard of practice because they have to see how things actually work in practice, because nothing, even the most thought out design, is going to have problems as you actually build the system. And so, building architects, again, they have knowledge of the process of building buildings. Now, you as a software architect, should you be writing code every single day? That depends on the size of your team. I mean, you know certain software architects that might be 20 to 30 percent of your time and the rest of the time you're writing code if you have a huge system then you might spend zero of your time writing the code but again you're actually looking at the code in order to figure out how your architecture is evolving and what are the areas that you need to focus on to help the teams be more effective but this just seems to be a problem I've seen on a lot of the different architects is they just don't have that exposure. And even the ones that do have the code exposure, it's from 20 to 30 years ago. And let's face it, if you haven't looked at code in 20 to 30 years, it's not the same thing. Code changes on a daily basis let alone you know 20 years i mean there's some fundamental changes that have happened that affect how you build architectures like for example lambdas you know if you haven't ever written a lambda expression and understand how powerful they are in order to facilitate a more decoupling of your architecture then you really should not be an architect and it's finding though these people that are the talented engineers that want to be architects that is the problem because what comes along with architecture is the part that i feel like a lot of developers don't want to do and that's the architecture documentation and me myself You know, I despise documenting architectures, Um, documentation is my least favorite part of the job. What I prefer doing is working with someone that does like documentation that is more of that system engineering type and explain to them my vision and have them build the documentation for me. Now, obviously, if you're a small company, that doesn't always work. In order to facilitate that, but as you start to get to be a bigger company that becomes easier and easier in order to make those products better. But again, what tends to happen is because the system engineers have that practice at creating those design artifacts they're always put in the architecture roles and they make decisions that aren't influenced by knowledge of software. The final piece I'll talk about is some of these common misconceptions about what a microservice architecture does and does not have to support. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of principles that a microservice architecture should support, but doesn't require it exclusively. So let's give an example of that. Um, A common piece that you hear with microservices is this claim that every single microservice should have its own running database instance, typically in a Docker container or some other containerized means. But it should be a one-to-one mapping, one microservice, one database. And that does make sense and facilitates a lot of benefits in the system, but it's not very dynamic. And it can be incredibly costly to have that many items running on depending on your server infrastructure. So rather than saying that a microservice has to, in order to be a microservice, have one independent instance of a database, instead what the requirement should really be interpreted is your microservice should support having one database instance associated with it. However, if for sizing reasons or for any number of other factors, it's decided that your microservice database lives with other microservices databases on a shared database instance, you still fulfill that requirement. The important part is not to couple your microservices database to requiring any other microservices database to be present in order to work correctly. As Now, if you go through that microservice, then obviously you know, you'll be hitting that other database, but that's not what I mean. I mean directly dependent, like through a foreign key or any number of ways that you can tie those databases directly. So a lot of times, it's the microservice should support something But to blanketly say that's the only way and it's not a microservice if it doesn't support having its own independent database is, again, getting into this purist type mentality that frustrates me on a lot of different software topics. Again, we already talked about the web piece of it should be able to be web enabled, but it doesn't have to be. And so one of the ways around that is you can actually write into your microservice, a more dynamic client. And what I mean by that is you, when you call a different microservice, it shouldn't be to the web instantiation of the microservice. It shouldn't be to a internal queue representation. What it should be is to some kind of a wrapper client. And then it's up to your configuration to determine, hey, if I'm deployed to a fully deployable cloud, then I am going to call the web version because that's how the cloud infrastructure works and you gain all the benefits of a cloud and yada yada. If I am on the other hand, deploying to a single computer where everything's running on the computer and resources are at a premium, then that wrapper can call a dependency injection version of the microservice instead of having to have that overhead we talked about about the web service calls. So it's not that much overhead to write the wrapper, but the power that that gives you is this deployment flexibility. And again, you'll hear a lot of the the purists talk about, well, no, you need to be doing the web piece to gain the operating system, you know, agnosticness, but we've, we've talked about how that is another one of these should supports, but in reality doesn't have to in order to be a microservice. Another one of the shoulds, but doesn't have to support is not every one of the services running in a microservice architecture has to be a microservice. Sometimes it makes more sense to have more of a SOA-style service that plugs into the rest of the microservices, depending on what that domain requires. There's a lot of this conception that says that to be a microservice architecture, you have to have fully microserviced every single one of your services, or you can't make that claim. But that involves so much rewriting of your code that if you have the money and time to do that great sure let's make everything a microservice but even if you still your domain might dictate that a microservice doesn't actually make that much sense what's important is that you have a callable service that you can rely on that make this system so it's more about figuring out a architecture that aligns with what your system needs, then really focusing on being hundred percent adherent to whatever your, your architecture is. And I've been saying architecture a lot, but this gets back to a fundamental disconnect where really microservices isn't an architecture. It's an architectural style that should help dictate your architecture. But the architecture itself is the design of your individual system. And it can be whatever makes sense. It doesn't have to conform to the architectural style in every instance in order to facilitate the system working as a whole. And this, again, gets into a lot of misconceptions about what you should and should not do to modernize your system and align with that architecture style. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Um, I will continue to do uh, one of these episodes a week. And once again, if you have any comments or inputs, I am actually gonna be starting a Twitter account for Software Talk. I am also gonna be starting a Facebook page um, in order to talk about different episodes, let people make comments and suggest additional topics that you would like me to talk about, um, problems that you're having in modernizing your dev team, and any other feedback that I can get from you. Again, thank you for listening, and talk to you next week.